Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here. I know we're walking through Advent this season, and for a lot of you, uh, it may not be familiar, but we uh, enjoy this time of the year where we get to sit and just meditate and worship on uh, who God is and what He has done for us and the hope that He's brought us, the peace, the love, and the joy that comes through Christ. And so we are walking through Advent, and last week we looked at hope. And today we will look at peace. And so just as a reminder, the idea from last week is that we wanted to take a deeper look into what this word Advent meant. And so Advent or Adventus is from uh, the, the Latin word. And it has a really a deeper meaning than just the idea of coming, the coming of Christ, even though that is a huge part of it. It goes a little deeper than that. And there's a reason why the early church chose the word Adventist, because he, they could have chose four to five other words that had this idea of the coming of Christ, but they chose this word because of its meaning. It's a little deeper rooted. It means this idea of a rising of a power, the idea of this infiltration of, the, of our thoughts of, of the Jewish system and how they thought that, that Christ infiltrated that. And it also has this military implication that is this idea of announcing the glorious king return or the emperor's return from battle. And so this is the idea that we are announcing the glorious return of Christ our Savior from battle, the battle which he has already won. So in the second coming, but before that, we know that we are announcing the coming of the glorious king who would bring us victory in his death and resurrection. And so there's also a kind of real neat implication to this too is that they use this word to celebrate the king's birthday, right? And I think that's what we're doing here, right? As we look forward to the birth of Christ, they use this word to celebrate the king or the emperor's birthday. And so there's a lot deeper meaning than just the coming of, of the king or the coming of the emperor. It's a deeper rooted word. And so I think by us understanding that, I think understanding this deeper meaning of Advent it leads us to a deeper desire for evangelism, a deeper desire for us to announce the glorious return of the king. This is the theme. This is the overarching theme of not only this season, not only this series, but hopefully your life as you walk with Christ, that you understand there's something deeper, there's a deeper meaning to this life than just living and dying. But it's that we are to announce the glorious return of our King, that we are to proclaim His peace, love, hope, and joy. And so, as we look to hope last week, I think there's a reason, I think there's a, a progression, at least in my mind, at least the way I laid this out, of this hope, peace, love, and joy. I don't think it was just came about. And so I think there's an order to it. And when we think about the gospel we see the order clearly. And so for a moment here, I want to talk about the gospel. I want to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so God himself, he sent his son to earth to be born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he lived the perfect life of obedience, the obedience to death. He was our perfect lamb, our perfect sacrifice, the perfect atonement for the sins of the world. And because he laid down his life for us, and not only did he lay down his life, that he raised up again, we have life. 
We have forgiveness. We have victory in Christ. Amen? This is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of this selfless act, God's wrath has been satisfied for all of eternity. All of eternity. And so this truth has been revealed, has been revealed to us and all of creation. And so here's the implication of this during the Advent season. Here's the gospel implication. That Christ is our hope for salvation. That He is steadfast. That it is sure. Remember we read in Hebrews 6, 19 last week, it says, This hope we have is an anchor for our souls. A hope both sure and steadfast. And one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. This hope is truth for us. It's not merely wishful thinking, but it's concrete. That our hope is dredged deep, deep into the sacrifice of Christ. That it is held there. We believe this. And for believers, there's the difference. The world hopes for things to happen. They hope for things to change in their life. And it's wishful. It's vague. And really, it's meaningless. But for us, we can dredge that anchor deep into Christ. That He accomplished what He came to do. That God's promises are true. That His covenants will last forever. And because Christ is our hope for salvation, we have peace. We have peace with God, the Father. Because we know that he is in control no matter what life circumstances come about. No matter what. He is in control. And we have peace with God knowing that. And then comes joy. Joy in life into all eternity. But before joy we understand love. We understand the love of Christ. We understand the sacrifice that he gave. That he laid down his life. That he loved you first. He loved you first. And you didn't have to do anything to gain that love. And so this progression, it's something that happens immediately. I'm not saying over a lifetime, like we're, we're trying to, okay, understand hope, and then now we got to understand peace, now we got to understand love. It's, it's an immediate thing. It's an immediate, that hope that God is our anchor, and now we understand that God is control, and I'm at peace with myself, and now I have the freedom to love without anything in return that I can love and then ultimately that I have a joy knowing that it is secure in eternity forever this is the gospel this is the gospel of Jesus Christ and so last week we looked at hope and we compared it to the world's view on hope and now this week I want to look at I want to look at our peace and I want to do the same so there's going to be a progression that kind of looks the same we're going to kind of look at peace and compare the views real quick and then I want to reflect back on Christ, the Prince of Peace. And then I want to look forward to our evangelism within peace. How can we, while waiting upon the Lord, we can show and display this peace to the world. And so this week, peace. If you look up peace, there's, the definition is, is really pretty accurate to what we would think it should be within the Bible. There's one key part that we're going to kind of lean on when we think of the biblical view of peace. But when we think of peace ourselves, the way we use it in this time, in this world, is 
is fairly accurate, right? I think all of us can think about times when we've sat down and we said, if I could just have a moment of peace and quiet, right? Especially coming up with this holiday season, I know you all love your family and all the little kids that are running around crazy. But I know, at least I know for myself, there's moments where we say, can I just have a moment of peace and quiet? And that's okay. That's accurate, right? And so the world would see that as a moment or as a season or as a period of peace, right? We've all, we've all been there. There's this moment of peace. Even war, when we think about this world, that like when we go to war, like there's a moment of peace, but at any moment, you know, Trump might hit the button, right? It might blow us all up. It might be at war again. And so there are moments of peace. But when we look at the biblical view, here's, here's, here's the, the, the key part of peace when we look from a biblical view is that it is to be complete. Right? This is what we're looking at. Christ has made our peace complete. It is complete in Him. It does not waver. It does not come and go. You are no longer at war with Christ. You have made peace with Christ. You've made peace with God through Christ to be more accurate. Because of His sacrifice. It is ended. And so as we read through these scriptures, as we reflect on Christ, keep that in the back of your mind. Keep this idea of, of this complete, to be complete or to be sound. As we move through these scriptures and allow that freedom just to rest on you. And so if you would, turn with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and as you're turning there, this is really just the, the biblical comfort and just remind us that, we have, that we've trusted in Christ and that there's, there's a hope in Him, the one to come, the birth of our Savior, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He is sovereign over all. And so as we look at this, as we're moving from Isaiah chapter 8 to chapter 9, it was dark and gloomy and there was despair. And then there's this, this prophecy of, of Jesus, the birth of Christ, the anointed one, the king. Did you read this with me? It says this, chapter 1. It says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephilim with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And the people who walked in darkness will see great light. Those who lived in the dark land, the light will shine on them. And you shall multiply the nations and you shall increase their gladness and they will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice with the divide spoil. For you shall break the yoke and their burden of the staff on their shoulders, for the rod of their oppressors as the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult, and the cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
and there will be no more there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over the king over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this and the mosaic prophet the prophecy that Christ will become our prince of peace that there will be no more gloom for those who believe and trust in God. We know it's hard. We know that we wrestle with worry. But if we can understand, if we can truly grasp that God is our peace, that He is in control, what a witness to this world. What a way to bear witness to this world. And so, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. It's the last time I'll make you turn. A little biblical exercise here for you. Uh, Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. You're probably all familiar with this section of Scripture, but I hope and I pray that as we've looked back at Christ, as we look back at the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Prince of Peace, the one who will make this life complete for us, I hope we get to see our gospel duty in peace, our gospel duty in this Advent season as we wait upon the Lord. And so Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 through 9, says this. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in the stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And he says, therefore, meaning therefore, because back in chapter 3 and verse 20, I'm going to read, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to look back in back, uh, verse 20 of chapter 3, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who transformed our body, our humble estate, into conformity with the body of his glory by exerting of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So therefore, for our citizenship is not here. He's, he's, He's setting the stage for peace. He's letting you understand that you have been made complete. You are citizens of heaven. You are no longer citizens here. Therefore, and going back into chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, Paul's been gone for a season, he says, For I long to see you have been my joy and my crown, and in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. These are believers in Philippi that Paul has eternally invested in. And so when I read this, I think back and I wonder, I wonder if Christ returned today, if Christ returned today, who is our joy and our crown? Who have you invested into? Who have you mentored and discipled? So this is a small little side note, but it it plays well within the scripture. Who are you discipling? Who are you mentoring? Who am I discipling? Who am I mentoring? Who am I investing in for the long haul? Who can I call my crown and my joy? Wow. It takes commitment. It takes commitment. And Paul says that. He says, you are my joy and you are my crown. And then we see a unique shift here. A unique shift in the scripture. From this praise to discipline, and then back to encouragement, all right? And so picking up in verse 2, it says this, I urge you, 
Odia, and I urge you, Syntyche, to live in harmony with the Lord. You hear, his, you hear his demeanor? I urge you to live in harmony with the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggles in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so he says, I urge you to live in harmony. And this idea is that we have the same thing, the mind that we think of the same thing. Live in harmony with each other. It's okay to disagree, to agreeably disagree, right? It's okay to disagree or agree to disagree, right? That's okay. We're not asking that we live with this idea of of being uh, in uniformity, but this idea of unity. So there's a different. I don't want you to look like me. I want you to be unique in the gospel. I want God to use you to be the hands and feet of the good news of Jesus Christ in your own unique way. But I want us to be unified in the truths of Christ, in the doctrines, in the, the ones that we hold close in Christ. Right? This is what he's trying to say. So don't worry about this silly conflict. And so he says, I urge you have the same thing in mind. Think the same way. Meaning the gospel is the thread that has to weave us together. It's not whether we all enjoy the same sports or the same activities in life. Or we raise our kids the same way. It's that the gospel threads all of that. And it's all in a unique way. And God uses that. So this is what we need to understand as the church. And when we understand this, we put on display to the world a peace that surpasses all comprehension in our rejoicing. And so he says this. He says, I urge you, I urge you to live in harmony. In verse 3, it says, indeed, true command. He's talking about just an elder or a leader in the church. He didn't need to name them. He's just saying, look, lead these women, encourage these women. Because guess what? It says this, I also ask the help of these women who have shared in my struggle. Who have shared in my struggle. Paul's saying, they've shared with me in my struggles. What is the struggle? Laboring in the gospel. Laboring in the gospel. They've shared. They're co-laborers in the gospel. And he also says at the end, he says that they are in the book of life. These are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. There's an old saying, say, we can choose our friends, but we're stuck with our family, right? <laughs> it's okay that we don't think the same on everything, but when it comes to the gospel, we need to be united. We need to be united. We are family. We are the ones that are going to display this love and peace and joy and hope to the world. And so then he moves into verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. To all men. The Lord is near. So he's saying rejoice in your conflict. Rejoice, but be gentle. Be gentle. Let the world see our gentleness as we resolve conflict with each other. Because we know that Christ is in control. We have peace. And then here's the hinge verse, verse 6. We must all know it. We probably can quote it. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Let your requests be known for God. The first word in the Greek text in this, in this verse is nothing. 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 
Don't let anything worry you. He's saying there is absolutely nothing in this world that should bring anxiety to you, knowing that the peace of God is upon you. That's hard to do, right? It's hard to do. But it's something we must strive to. And unfortunately, us as believers, we haven't looked to that as a sin. We haven't recognized our worrying as sin. We've kind of just coddled it and been okay with it. And it's difficult for us to hear, especially those, especially when we deal with it on a daily basis, right? It's difficult to hear. We would much rather label adultery. We'd much label pornography, homosexuality. You know, we have the big, the big labels we want to place on sin. But friends and family, worry is a sin. And Paul is very adamant about it. And so I would guess, just like me, we all deal with worry. Some years ago, a professor did a study on worry, and I want to reveal some of these facts, or at least from his survey, how true it is or not. But an American professor at a large university did some research, and, and this is what he discovered about anxiety, about worry. He said 40% of all worry never happens. 40% of all worry never happens. So 40% of what we're worrying about probably never even happens. 30% are concerns of the past. We worry about what we may have done. We worry how did that affect someone. 12% are needless worries about health. Are you the WebMD person in here? Yeah? I heard a lot of laughs. A lot of us worry about health. 10% are petty issues. And 8% are legitimate concerns. So that means 92% of our worry is wasted time. 92%. According to the university study. According to Paul, 100% of it is wasted time. There is no legitimate worry. And so Paul recognizes this problem. He recognizes this big problem in life. What did you worry about this week? Think about that. There's a lot I worried about. I'll confess. Building a house, trying to get in for Christmas. And this, I had to rest in the scripture. I had to rest. I thank God that, it, that he gave it to me. And, and I prayed peace over my life, especially when things don't go right in the construction world and it's your own house. <laughs> and so you need peace. And it's ministered to me this week. And so I have to rest in that. What are we worrying about? Why do we spend time worrying? What does worry accomplish? And Paul would argue and say, nothing nothing. Stress and ulcers, right? That's what it causes. Research also showed, as he did this research, that over a hundred diseases can be directly attributed to worry. Over a hundred diseases. Worry is a burden. 
that God never intended for you to bear. Do you hear that, church? Worry is a, something that God never intended for you to bear. And so what a platform for us, the church, to live in the peace of God, in the midst of a world that worries, that has anxiety over millions of different things, and that we can rest knowing that God has made us complete. He's made us complete. And so Paul goes on and he says this, here's the cure for your anxiety. He says, worry about nothing, pray about everything. In verse 6, it says, worry about nothing and pray about everything. And there's four different prayers here. It says prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and request. If you look in here, and I just want to give you a quick overview of that. Prayer, it's just this broad word of communicating with God. Church, it's okay to communicate with God. Matter of fact, it's necessary to communicate with God broadly. Speak to God, pray to God. Secondly, it's a supplication. The word here it's used is to convey this, this sincerity of sharing your personal needs. So there's this idea of just speaking with God, communicating with God, and then there's the specific prayers. Lord, I need help in my worrying. I need help. And then tag that with what you're worrying with. If it's a job, you know, if it's health, these are things that we worry about. Be specific. Our thanksgiving, these prayers are gratitudes of our hearts. Are you grateful for what the Lord has done in your life? Pray for those things. Think upon those things. And then last, he says, your request. Make requests. Make requests. Don't just be general in your request, just like in your asking. Be specific. Make requests to the Lord. And so in verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, everything, church, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And so when you have moments of weakness and you want to worry, just pray. Pray. It sounds cliche, but it's true. Pray. Pray. Prayer is critical. Critical. When we want to seek to break sin in our life. When we want to end sin in our life. In verse 7, Paul says this. This is the promise. Paul's promise. He says, if you choose to pray... Instead of worry, God will cover you. And this is what he writes. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. This phrase, the peace of God, occurs nowhere else in Scripture. Nowhere else. This is the only place in the New Testament that it occurs in all of Scripture. And so you pray instead of worry. Because God's peace will flood your being. He will allow you to rest knowing that you've been complete. When you don't understand your circumstances, God knows them. When you ask the questions, why God? When you wrestle with God, ultimately find rest 
in knowing that he is in control. When it says this, it will guard you. It will guard your heart. This is a military term where they put a guard who had responsibility to protect the camp. And so the implication is, is that God will protect you. He will set up camp and guard your heart if you are a man and woman of prayer. That if you seek to pray and seek to give him thanksgiving, if you seek to make your requests known in your worry and your anxieties, God will protect you. That is a promise. And we can hold to that promise. And the peace of God will over, overwatch you and guard you against sin that wants to come in, that unwanted sin that wants to intrude our thoughts and our mind. And the enemy is unable to get to us because God is our guard. And then finally, in verse 8, Paul says, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. God of peace will be with you. Practice these things. Proclaim his truth. So what is having peace with God? Remember the Christian viewpoint on that? That sure, this world... When we think of moments of peace, when we think of these moments where we can rest and have silence and peace, that's okay. But in your worrying, think of God who has made you complete. His peace has been completed in Christ. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to have anxieties. And knowing that God has made your relationship through Christ complete in him, we are able to have a deeper understanding of the season of Advent and we're able to proclaim that to the world when they're looking for true peace, when they don't understand, when they can't comprehend life's tough situations. It's for a reason. Because we know that in our suffering, we've been made complete. They don't understand that. They don't understand that. And what a testimony that you and I have to share with this world in this season, in this life, as we wait for the coming of our King, as we wait to announce the glorious return. And in our waiting, it's not sitting back. It's displaying the love of God, the hope of God, the peace of God, the joy of God. And so in our waiting, let's be a people that shows that God has made us complete. That we don't need to worry because we know that the glorious return of our King is near. It is near and we will proclaim it. If you believe it, if you are a child of God, you will proclaim the peace of God. So I challenge you, church, to bear witness to display this peace to the world. And let me close this with a verse to encourage you to live in the peace of God. 
and to put it on display for all the world to see the work of Christ in you. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, I'll just read it over you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. And I hope this encourages you this morning. It says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you to be him to him be dominion forever and ever amen god will establish he will complete you he has as a child of god he has established you you are complete in him quit worrying and allow that to fuel the fire that proclaims the gospel to a world that needs it that needs to see true peace let me pray